Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is May 24, 2017, and I'm Teo Mayer, Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host. We've gone back in time 100 years to May 18, 1917. Today is quite a day. It's all pomp and circumstance as President Wilson signs the Selective Service Act into law, ending the debate about an all-volunteer army. Instead, it's going to be a combination of volunteer and conscripted army. All men between the ages of 21 and 30 will have to register for the draft by June 5th. There's still a big question about who's going to head this huge new army. Wilson also answers that question today. And it's a big fat no to Teddy Roosevelt's plan to raise a division of volunteer troops, which he, of course, would lead to Europe. Some think he probably misses the glory days of the Rough Riders pounding it out in Cuba. It's also a big no to General Leonard Wood, the former U.S. Army Chief of Staff. Apparently, Wilson thinks he has too many ties to the opposition Republican Party. Instead, Today's second big announcement by President Wilson is the appointment of General John J. Pershing to head the U.S. Army's expeditionary force. Pershing is a political nonpartisan. He's publicly popular and the former commander of what was known as the Punitive Expedition, sent out to spank Mexico's Pancho Villa for sneaking up north and attacking the town of Columbus in New Mexico. May 18th is a big day on the Hill. Well, what else is going on this week in 1917? For interesting details, let's look at the official bulletin. Here are some of the stories running in America's official War Gazette. Saturday, May 19, 2017. Storyline, regulars will be first troops sent to France. President announces in statement issued after signing the selective conscription bill. Also Saturday, May 19. Storyline, U.S. Army unit arrives in Britain. The first unit of the United States Army is now on foreign soil. Yesterday marks the arrival in England of Roos Hospital No. 4 of Cleveland, Ohio, under command of Major Harry L. Gilchrist of the Medical Corps of the United States Army. This is the first of six Army-based hospitals which have been ordered abroad for service in France. Monday, May 21, Storyline. Regiment of U.S. Marines in Expedition to France. Secretary of the Navy Daniels announces that a regiment of U.S. Marines, 2,600 men, will accompany the first expedition to France. The regiment will be commanded by Colonel Charles A. Doyen. In being among the first on the firing line in France, the Marines will be upholding their historic record, said Secretary Daniels. Monday, May 21, Storyline. Insignia adopted for all government aerial craft. The United States government has adopted as the insignia for all its aircraft a white star with a red center on a circular background of blue. All American airplanes, seaplanes, balloons, and dirigibles will bear the Star of the Flying Corps, which combines the red, white, and blue of the national flag. Wednesday, May 23, Storyline. Cotton, one of the essentials for modern war. Secretary of the Navy Daniels introduces the Honorable Arthur James Balfour to the Cotton Manufacturers Association in a session in Washington, D.C. Daniel declares, Cotton is still king. 
And in closing from the May 23 issue, here's an article that talks about what the official bulletin itself is all about. The headline states, Function of the Official Bulletin. The article goes on to read, Many misunderstandings have arisen with regard to the official bulletin, which is being issued by the Committee on Public Information under orders of the President. This publication is not a newspaper in the accepted sense of the word. Its single purpose is to assure the full and legal printing of the official announcements of the government heads in connection with governmental business. Exclusive publication is neither the thought nor ambition. It will not interfere with the legitimate function of the press in any manner, nor will official news be delayed or withheld in order to give the bulletin any special news significance. So the article goes on to explain what types of information the official bulletin publishes. These include proclamations and executive orders of the president, rules and regulations of the executive department, administrative orders, official bulletins and official statements of policy, and statutes enacted relating to the war matters of which the public should be officially informed. It's interesting to note that the cost of this publication is really expensive. An annual subscription is $5. That's the equivalent of over $100 today. But they do have a comp list, and that comp list includes the president, the cabinet, members of the Senate and the House, the diplomatic and consular corps, foreign diplomats and consuls, officers of the military service, and every post office gets a free copy to post, governors and mayors of all cities, all newspapers, magazines, colleges, and universities, and major trade organizations. Industry and the rest of the nation has to pony up. The article concludes with an unusual paragraph, quote, Should there someday be a World War I Centennial News podcast, each issue of the official bulletin shall be republished on the centennial anniversary of its original publication date and provided free on something called the Internet to an assigned address called www.cc.org slash bulletin, all lowercase. The source of this last paragraph cannot be officially confirmed. Check it out at www.cc.org slash bulletin. Joining us now is former NPR correspondent Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Mike, in the first few paragraphs of your post, historian Martin Gilbert also notes the arrival of the first base hospital unit sent to Europe. Now, it was sent over in secret by the War Department as the first U.S. military to arrive, but your post makes it really clear. Apparently, their arrival is in the midst of a pretty dire situation for the French Army. Tell us about it, Mike. Okay, Teo, so we'll back up a bit. The headlines read, In France, it's mutiny. Thousands refuse to fight. Rebellion targets Paris. French sack commander. First Americans arrive in France. Too few to help. And this is special to the Great War Project. The first American military personnel arrive in Europe on May 18th, 100 years ago. Some 243 American soldiers reach Britain, according to historian Martin Gilbert. They are the medical staff and orderlies for a base hospital. A few days later, according to Gilbert, the first American combat troops arrive in France. They number 1,308. They are arriving in the midst of a crisis in the French army. Thousands of French soldiers are walking away from the battlefield. It is wholesale mutiny. At the front in France, as many as 30,000 soldiers have left their trenches and reserve billets and have fallen to the rear. Now the mutineers set their sights on Paris. They seize one railway station and try to take the train to Paris without success. They are blocked. Troops resting in reserve areas refuse to return to the front, writes historian Adam Hochschild. The mutineers sing the Internationale, the International Communist Anthem, 
They flaunt the red flag. Rebellion breaks out in more than 30 divisions. An infantry regiment takes over a town and refuses to move. The scale of the mutinies, observes Gilbert, made clear to the French high command that the soldiers were unwilling to go through the torments of a renewed offensive. They would hold the line, but not go over the top. The situation becomes so severe that the French remove their top commanding general, Robert Nivelle. The French fighting spirit is broken. There began what commanders admit are acts of collective indiscipline. It grows and expands to become known as the mutinies of 1917. The mutinies originate with French soldiers at the front, but quickly spread to the civilian population of northern France. General Philippe Pétain, the new top general, understands better than Nivelle how to end the mutinies. Mutiny is a capital offense. The penalty is death. But under Pétain, few soldiers are executed. Instead, the French command appeals to the civilian population, asking, do you want a German occupation in northern France? In most places, the answer is a resounding no. Civilians, especially women, writes historian Norman Stone, told them to go back to the front. When General Pétain takes over, he takes action that indicates he has heard the mutinous soldiers. Reports historian Adam Hochschild, he improved the rest billets behind the lines, upgraded the army's food, and increased leave. Perhaps most significantly, Pétain tours the front, speaks to every mutinous regiment, and pledges to refrain from ordering attacks that, in his words, waste lives needlessly. But Pétain understands that much work has to be done to reclaim the loyalty of the troops. As for the appearance of the Americans, they are arriving in small numbers and are not in a position yet to have an impact on the battlefield. Nonetheless, they are badly needed. And that's some of the story this week, 100 years ago in the Great War. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. If you'd like to watch interesting and informative videos about World War I 100 years ago this week, check out the new posts from our friends at the Great War channel on YouTube. This week, their episodes include The Ally from the Far East, Japan in World War I. Indy Nidell, the host, walks you through Japan's role in World War I, including a really great perspective of who was Japan in 1917. Also this week, the hero of Tannenberg, Paul von Hindenburg. This video profiles a German war commander and hero of the time. Follow the link in the podcast notes to the Great War channel on YouTube. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now, news about the centennial and the commemoration. At the World War I Centennial Commission, the team is still buzzing about last week's nod from the CFA on concept approval for America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Edwin Fountain, the vice chair of our commission and the project lead for the memorial, explains more specifically what happened and what it means. Edwin notes... Thursday's decision by the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, the CFA, was a significant milestone for the World War I Memorial Project. Federal memorials in Washington, D.C. are subject to the design approval of the CFA. They gave us, quote, concept approval, which means the CFA has endorsed our proposal to establish a memorial at Pershing Park near the White House in the form of a large bronze bas-relief sculpture that evokes the story of World War I. This sculpture will be the centerpiece of a trio of memorial elements, including the existing statue of General Pershing, the American General of the Armies, as well as a ceremonial flag stand that will offer additional opportunities for commemoration of the war. To learn more, see the latest designs, and help build America's World War I memorial in Washington, D.C., go to www.cc.org memorial.
Honor our World War I veterans with a donation for this project on Memorial Day. They can't, but we can. Thank you for your support. So what is Memorial Day? That's besides a day off in early summer and a lot of car sales. What does it mean and where did it come from? Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day and traces back to the Civil War as a time to decorate the Union soldiers' graves with flowers. By the 20th century, there were competing Union and Confederate holiday traditions celebrated on different days. These eventually got merged into Memorial Day to honor all Americans who died while in military service. It also marks the start of the summer vacation season, while Labor Day marks its end. On June 28, 1968, Congress passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, which moved four holidays, including Memorial Day, from their traditional dates to a specified Monday in order to create convenient three-day holiday weekends. On Memorial Day, many people visit cemeteries and memorials to honor those that died in military service, and many volunteers place an American flag on each grave in national cemeteries. This year, activities include the annual Washington, D.C. parade, but we've gathered a whole bunch of links and information for you about Memorial Day activities all around the country. You'll find them in the podcast notes and on our World War I Centennial News website at www.cc.org slash cn. And in other activities and events, this week we picked one for you that's coming up next month in Orlando, Florida. In 2017, the U.S. Army turns 242. So quick, it's 2017, the Army turns 242, so what year was the U.S. Army established? 1775. I knew you'd get it. To celebrate, the Sunshine Chapter of the Association of the U.S. Army in Orlando, Florida is hosting a ball on June 17th. The ball will feature a World War I centennial theme with Over There, a celebration of the World War I soldier. Dr. Monique Seafried, one of the World War I centennial commissioners, will be the feature guest speaker. Lieutenant Colonel Edwin Kennedy will present a short talk on the augmentation of the Army leadership for an Army that grew 20-fold. For more information, see the link in the podcast notes. Next, it's time for updates from the states, and this week it's all about the ladies. On the Indiana State Commission website at www.cc.org indiana, there is an article about Ofa May, the first woman in the Marine Corps. By the summer of 1918, the Marine Corps was in need of more soldiers, many of whom were occupied with vital administrative and clerical positions, but the idea was circulated and eventually approved to allow women into the Marine Corps to fill these non-combat positions. From Kokomo, Indiana, Ofa Mae Johnson was the first in line when the recruiting station in Washington, D.C. opened its doors to women, and she would become a legend as the first woman Marine. Ofa demonstrated the willingness of women to step up to fill these roles just as earnestly and perform them just as capably as their male counterparts. Read more about her life and service at www.cc.org slash Indiana, all lowercase, or by following the link in the podcast notes. Now another story about service of women in the war, this time from the Alabama State Commission site at www.cc.org slash Alabama. The Motor Corps was one of eight divisions of the National League for Women's Service established on January 27, 1917. Their charter? to organize and train the great woman power of the country for specific economic service, to be prepared to meet existing needs, to be ready for emergency service, 
and to supplement the work of governmental departments and committees, federal, state, and city. And so at least 78 motor corps units were established across the country. The one in Montgomery, Alabama was activated on April 1918. You can read more about the women that made up the Corps and the supporting role they played throughout the war by visiting www.cc.org Alabama, all lowercase. In our education section, today we're going to talk about National History Day. It offers a year-long academic program for middle and high school students around the world. Each year, the National History Day contest encourages more than a half a million students to conduct historical research on topics of their choice. They enter their projects at the local and affiliate level, with the top students advancing to the national contest. World War I Centennial Commissioner Dr. Libby O'Connell will be giving a special award for the best World War I history project at the finals. The students are provided guiding articles and support materials, so the National World War I Museum's Curator of Education, Laura Volk, provided a wonderful reference guide about African-American soldiers in World War I and how that experience shaped the stand for equal rights after the war. Laura did a great job in providing a sample essay for participating students and teachers, but frankly, I took a look at it, and it's a pretty good read for anybody. We're going to expand this discussion next week when we'll be joined by Dr. Kathy Gorn, the executive director of the National History Day and an adjunct professor of history at the University of Maryland at College Park. Following Laura Volk's theme, this week in our international report, we turn our eyes and our ears to France. Now, last week we talked about the 369th experience and how they brought jazz to Europe. In a follow-up, we have a story from the French town of Brest, a harbor town in Brittany on the western coast, famous for fine chow in a country with great cuisine. Here, a group of middle schoolers wrote a radio drama about the Sammies who brought jazz to their town in 1917. Students researched the life of these American soldiers, including Lieutenant James Reese Europe, the then director of the Harlem Hellfighters 369th Regimental Band. By studying archives and other sources, the students collaborated with local musicians to create a jazz musical outlining the soldiers' lives in France, as well as the struggles they faced on returning to America. Follow the link in the podcast notes to watch some video clips of the live performances. The website's all in French, but the music is all jazz, so enjoy. Now from the UK, a story about how one of the thousands of anonymous dead in France was given back his name. The Joint Casualty and Compassionate Center of the UK's Ministry of Defense helped to identify the bones of Private Henry Parker, whose remains were found in France in 2015. By using DNA, they were able to find a match to his great-nephew, who, along with 25 of his other family members, attended the reinterment of Private Parker at the Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery, where he was buried along with full honors and, most importantly, with his name. To learn more, follow the link in the podcast Here in the United States, unfortunately, our Department of Defense has ceased looking for our MIAs from World War I. So, in our Spotlight on the Media section this week, we'd like to profile a very special fellow, Rob Laplander. Rob, as a private citizen, is a tireless advocate for America's World War I MIAs. And you know, there's over 4,400 of them. We proudly host Mr. Laplander's Doughboy MIA project website at www.cc.org slash MIA, all lowercase. You'll find their story and a searchable database that you can explore to find World War I MIAs from your state, your town, and even your family. 
Last week, the Wall Street Journal broke a story about Rob, which was also picked up by the History Channel. The headline reads, Missing World War I servicemen get full recognition with Doughboy MIA project. The article is about the project's success in the case of Seaman Herbert Renshaw, who fell overboard off the coast of South Carolina during a naval patrol 100 years ago this week on May 22, 1917, but probably due to a clerical error by naval officials. He was never listed on a monument to the missing at Brookwood American Cemetery in England. Now he will be. Thank you, Rob Laplander and the Doughboy MIA Project, for your great service for our World War I veterans. As your motto says, a man is only missing if he's forgotten. You can support Rob Laplander and his great work by doing yourself a favor and buying his book, Finding the Lost Battalion. A link to the book site is in the podcast notes. And speaking of books and authors, we have a special guest with us today. Richard Rubin is a premier author and storyteller about World War I. Someone once said to me, you know, if you're only going to read one single book about World War I, then you should read The Last of the Doughboys, which was Richard Rubin's first book. Now Richard has just released a second book on World War I called Back Over There, which just came out. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Tao. So, Richard, tell us a little bit about the book. Well, as you said, uh, The Last of the Doughboys was my first book about World War I. That was published in 2013. And after that was published, I started giving a lot of talks all over the country about America and World War I, something I still do. And I started getting a lot of questions at these talks about what France and the Western Front were like today. That led to me doing a series for the New York Times in 2014 on American World War I sites in France, and that in turn led to this book, Back Over There, which is sort of a, a travelogue meets history following the trail of the AEF on the Western Front in World War I, the American Expeditionary Forces. When you went to France, what did you find? Well. What I found, to my great surprise, was that the French remember America's important role in the First World War and winning the war much, much better than Americans do ourselves. And not only that, but a hundred years later, they remain eternally grateful for it. In a way, they're sort of the caretakers of our memory until we return to go get it ourselves uh, and or to reclaim it. You know, everywhere I went, I was treated exceedingly well for no other reason than because I'm American. And in essence, people regarded me as almost a member of the American Expeditionary Forces. And they quite literally thanked me for what I had done. It was nothing that I could have ever imagined. And of course, there's the fact that, you know, if your experience of battlefields is Saratoga and Gettysburg, you're going going to be very, very surprised over in France at just how untouched everything is and how much of it remains a hundred years later, despite the fact that really almost nothing has been done to preserve any of it. I took probably 15,000 photographs, you know, maybe 40 of which appear in back over there, but I post uh, at least one photograph every day on my Facebook page, which is at Richard Rubin Author, and I take requests and people message me all the time and ask me, can you post this thing that you wrote about or that thing that you wrote about? People, it turns out, really have an insatiable curiosity about it. So, Richard, where can I find this book? 
Anywhere books are sold, as they say. Uh, <laughs> bookstores, online. It's available in, in print and an electronic book. I recorded the audiobook narration myself. So anywhere and everywhere. I actually listened to The Last of the Doughboys as an audiobook and really enjoyed your narration and the book. Richard, you and I have been talking about a weekly feature here on World War I Centennial News called The Storyteller and the Historian. You're the storyteller, and Jonathan Bratton, a military historian from Maine, is your cohort on the project. Can you tell us about it? Well, I live in Maine also, and Jonathan, as you said, is the historian for the Maine National Guard. And we became friends a few years ago when I got in touch with him to help me research some stuff on soldiers from Maine who left a lot of graffiti in the underground mines at the Shamanda Dam back in 1918. And we just really enjoy talking about World War I and history in general. And we just decided at some point that we'd like to share the conversation with more people. So we're going to start a podcast, uh, also called The Storyteller and the Historian, that we're going to be posting uh, hopefully every month. And part of each month's podcast is going to be little segments that we're going to do for your podcast. Uh, any, any subject we find interesting, some will be tied to the centennial. Uh, some may not, in fact, have very much to do with the United States at all in World War I. It's a big subject, as you know, and I doubt we'll ever run out of topics. Well, we're really looking forward to it. It's going to be coming up next month, and that was Richard Rubin, author and storyteller. Thanks, Richard. Sure. You can add bon vivant if you want. <laughs> Thank you. It's time to talk about music in World War I. With us today are baritone John Brancy and pianist Peter Dugan. They debuted their recital, A Silent Night, at the Kennedy Center in 2014, which was hailed by the Washington Post as refreshingly, marvelously different. The program pays homage to the centennial of World War I through the music of the composers who lived through, fought in, and died in the Great War. The songs have now been put together as an album. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, thank you, Teo. Let me start with you, Peter. Tell us about the project and what inspired you guys to create the program. Well, John and I met as students at Juilliard, the Juilliard School in New York, and shortly after graduating, we had an opportunity to present our first professional debut recital together at the Kennedy Center, and this was in December of 2014, and we thought that it would be a very powerful and unique way of presenting a program if we tied it in with the centennial of the start of World War I. And so since it was close to Christmas, we called it A Silent Night, referenced the Christmas truce. As our encore, we performed Silent Night in different languages to represent that moment of peace in the midst of all that chaos. So you've turned this now into an album and a whole series of videos. Tell me about, about that. Yes, the album is made up of music by composers from England, Germany, France, and America. These are pieces that were written during the time of war by composers, most of whom fought in the war for the different sides, and some of the pieces were even composed in the trenches. So, John, you're actually coming to us right now from France where you're doing an opera? Yeah, that's correct. At the moment, I'm a traveling opera singer. That's what I do for my, my profession. And, yeah, so being in France and having now done this music uh, by Ravel and Debussy and Poulenc, uh, Ravel and Poulenc both fought in World War I. 
um, and coming over here and sort of recognizing and, and reliving what it would have been like 100 years ago, just walking the streets of Nancy, which is in Lorraine region of France. It, it transports you. And our, just being, that, that's the main thing. When, when performing this music and bringing these composers' words and songs to life, it really has the power to transport you as an audience member back to the time and really feel empathically the sentiment from the time as well. I'm homesick for my hills again, my hills again. To see above the seven plain unscabbarded against the And the lads for the liquor are there And there with the rest of the lads That will never be old There's chaps from the town and the field And the till and the cart And many to count to the stalwart And many the brave I noticed that you guys actually kicked off your project on an Indiegogo. How did that work? It went really well. It's always a question mark whether or not you'll be able to fund the project, but we seem to have had a lot of initial interest from the uh, concerts that we had done at the Kennedy Center, Carnegie Hall, and those audiences, along with some close friends and family and some fans from the uh, World War One Centennial Commission were interested in supporting the project. So we were able to completely crowdfund the album from start to finish, and we're just getting around to finalizing all of that, sending out the final rewards to everyone, and releasing the album officially through a program called CD Baby, cdbaby.com. And it's now available on Spotify, iTunes, and soon to be on World War One Centennial Commission store and www.ialbum.com. Uh, you can purchase signed copies of, of the album on there. Well, you're both incredibly accomplished musicians, and thank you for the work, and thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you so you. much, We're Dale. delighted to be here. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from Glen to Glen and down the mountainside. That was baritone John Brancy and pianist Peter Dugan and their World War I music album, A Silent Night. We've got a link for where to get the album in the podcast notes. That brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Hey, Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Hello, Teo. Well, we've seen so many great stories in the past few years about newly digitized collections. And this week, we saw an article from the Library of Congress highlighting 
yet another. This newly digitized collection of images comes from the Red Cross, and it offers a glimpse into the rehabilitation of amputees and wounded veterans after World War I. There are the usual images of nurses at work shuffling in their long white dresses between rows of convalescing soldiers, but there are also images that aren't immediately familiar. We see veterans with prosthetic arms and legs learning to farm, grasping shovels and handling plows. It's a really cool opportunity to view snapshots of what rehabilitation after the destruction of that war looked like. Our second story this week discusses weather and World War I. A new article from Smithsonian Magazine outlines the effect World War I had on the development of the field of meteorology and weather forecasting. Needless to say, a lot of military outcomes relied on accurate weather forecasting in wartime. Aeronautics, ballistics, the drift of poison gas, but forecasts at this time were in no way reliable. The pre-war practice of weather forecasting was archival in nature, merely matching observable weather in the present to historical records of previous weather. In 1917, while working in the Friends Ambulance Unit on the Western Front, a pacifist Quaker mathematician called Lewis Fry Richardson decided to experiment with the idea of making a numerical forecast, one based on scientific laws rather than past trends. You can and should read more about how he developed the foundation for modern day weather modeling at smithsonianmag.com. Our final story this week comes from 1917. We shared it on Facebook. It's a clipping from a newspaper from 100 years ago. The clipping shows an illustration of a mutt, a bit skinny on the side, with these words printed in bold above him. Is your dog an ally of the Kaiser? an image that apparently made wide circulation at the time. The dog pictured is blamed for killing 25 Missouri sheep. Readers are encouraged to consider how much food dogs consume. According to the paper, that's about the same amount of food as the average person. Food was expected to be scarce in 1917 and 1918, but it seems that finger pointing may have started at the expense of sweet puppy dogs everywhere. And that's the buzz this week. Thank you, Catherine. I, I wonder if they meant Sergeant Stubby as well. Okay, that's it for World War I Centennial News for this week. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, Richard Rubin, writer, author, and bon vivant, John Brancy and Peter Dugan, independent musicians, and Catherine Akey, the Commission Social Media Director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We're bringing the lessons of a hundred years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We rely entirely on your donations. No government appropriations or taxes are being used for this. So please give what you can by going to www.cc.org slash donate, all lowercase. Or if you're on your smartphone, just text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW, the number one, and text it to 41444. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, on iTunes and Google Play at World War I Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. 
Thank you for joining us. And this Memorial Weekend, don't forget to talk to somebody about the centennial of World War I. So long. Thank you.